Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft celebrates the diverse and talented writing in our workshops that hovers around a given theme. They happen once per eight-week session, every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers in workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their draft. The event is free, and the public is encouraged to attend. The theme of the draft 13.0 is Kiss Me, I'm Blank, and the draftees are Jenny Weens, Kiss Me, I'm Egyptian, Stacy Chadwick, Kiss Me, I'm a Teen, Melinda Miller, Kiss Me, I'm a Nevadan, and Mark Asmus, Kiss Me, I'm at a Seance. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. I'm Andrea Dupree. This is the draft, either 13.0 or 14.0. Anybody know? 13. Oh, 13, you. right? 13. You're the one with the spotlight. It should be 14, though. No. Um, yeah. Once we get into the teens, I am not a credible witness. No. Because I, I, everything kind of blends together. Yeah. Yeah, I only have 10 fingers. Um, anyway, we're so happy that you're here. Uh, the draft is something that we do at the end. Oh, hi. We do it at the end of each. Um, I don't get to see everybody spread out like that and, until we're sitting in the audience, and then I get to see everyone. Um, and I'm not that tall, so like at parties, I only see the people at eye level or at the you know, closest rate, you know, the orbit right around Anyway, you see, you see a lot of backs and chests. Backs and yeah. chests, which you guys all have great backs and chests. But, um, you should know. I, sh- I should, um, and I do. So, thank you for coming. This is something we do at the end of each session. It's a way to kind of broaden everybody's understanding of what's going on here. Because I think when you're in a workshop or you're just you know coming to events and stuff, you don't always have a sense of what else is going on. So our idea was we'll take some people from each of the genres that are taught here. And we can't always get all the genres because we only do four readings. There have been studies about how long somebody can sit and actually focus on what is being said. And I don't know what those studies reveal, but I feel like personally I can make it through four and feel excited to hear that fourth one. But if there was a fifth, I might not be as excited. And I, we, we're all about having an excited audience. So um, I'll try not to make you sorry that you're here. So we, we ask four different readers from different genres, different workshops to come up and read on a given theme. And we thought being kind of, you know, think, what is it? St. Patrick's Day? Yeah. I have some Irish blood and, um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks. So, and do other people have Irish blood? I mean, uh, mo- a lot of a lot of people do, and you know, also some Welsh and French and Swiss and Scottish and. Cherokee. There are so many Irish because most of them are Catholic. <laughs> wow, that didn't go very well. Sorry. <laughs> Jeez. No, I. I it just. The last joke I'll say tonight. He's actually barred from joking, so if he jokes, don't laugh. He's not, a, he's not supposed to. Um, 
So anyway, tonight we have a really exciting lineup, and what we'll do is we'll invite the instructor who drafted the person up to introduce them, and that's kind of fun. I, I love that part. You get to know some of the instructors. None and of you, them are here. No, two of oh, them are. two of them. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, Mike wanted to say a few words on the occasion of the St. Patrick's Day draft, so I want to... Should I move so you no, can... No, please don't go. Stay. <laughs> I thought to get us started, I'd like to read two poems. Just read one for now. The first one is The Odyssey. No, okay. Dear Muse. No, something like that. Wait, I'm going to do it in the Greek first, and then I'll do it in the English. No, okay. So, um, in in honor of St. Patrick's Day, should I do that one first? Um, Or should I I do the other one? The Irish guy first, or should I do the other, the funny guy? Do the funny guy. I'll do the funny guy. He might be Irish. He might be Irish. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming. Okay, so um, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, Thomas Lux is our next writer studio guest. And, of course, Lux is Greek. No, it's Irish for light. And uh, he's a fantastic poet. Um, And in case you haven't heard about him or heard his poetry, I'm going to read a poem for you. But um, there's a short story that I have to tell before the poem so you get what happens so um one day thomas lux the poet is driving to work in his very poetic car i don't know what's a poetic car a ford yeah an old a pinto i was gonna say pinto yeah or a maverick which is the same thing pacer amc pacer yeah um and he sees something spray painted on an overpass and he thinks wow the people in my town really can't spell very well and then he was inspired to write a poem. And, of course, the thing that was spray-painted was a message of love. Do you want this higher? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or I can just... Oh, whoa, hey. All right, that's much better. <laughs> so the title of the poem by Thomas Lux is called I Love You, Sweatheart. <clears throat> Believe me, it's May, f- May 5th and 6th. He's going to be great. I love you, sweatheart. A man risked his life to write the words. A man hung upside down, an idiot friend holding his legs with spray paint to write the words on a girder 50 feet above a highway. And his beloved, the next morning, driving to work... His words are not meant to be so unique. Does she recognize his handwriting? (laughs) Did he hint to her at her doorstep the night before of something special, darling, tomorrow? And did he call her at work expecting her to faint with delight at his celebration of her, his passion, his risk? She will know I love her now. The world will know my love for her. A man risked his life to write the words. I'm sorry. Yeah. Love is like this at the bone, we hope. Love is like this sweatheart, all sore and dumb and dangerous, ignited, blessed, always, regardless, no exceptions, Always in blazing matters like these, 
blessed. Thank you. That's at the next um, Colorado holiday of Cinco de Mayo. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, So thank you, Mike, for that. Do I get to sit down now? No, no, I mean, you can. Um, So the first person I'm going to introduce is somebody who we were lucky enough to hire a few years ago, and she quickly distinguished herself as um, one of the most popular instructors. In fact, this couldn't have happened at a better time. When I was schmoozing right before this, somebody came up to me and said, I am actually astonished by the faculty you have. And this was somebody in her class. Um, And this is somebody who went to Harvard. No, she might (laughs) have. She might have gone to Harvard. She might have gone to Harvard. But I've heard from other people who went to Harvard that our faculty (laughs) sit right up there. Um, She's a beautiful writer, a beautiful person. Her name is Polly Younger, and she's going to introduce Mark Asimus. Hello. Um, Mark Asmus is in my short story class. I teach the intro and intermediate, and I have been at Lighthouse for a few years now. And I realized on my way over, I've had quite a few students in the draft, which I've been really lucky to do, but somehow I always worked it so I didn't have to be here and do the introduction. <laughs> Andrea's always done them for me, and so I just got to write them, and she got to entertain everybody. And it'd probably be better if she was doing it right now. But um, I had a tough time with the Kiss Me theme, of thinking about what would be a good story to select for it. And so I just decided to go with Kiss Me, I'm Searching for an Escape, because Mark Asmus... (laughs) Well, it makes sense in a moment, but... um, (laughs) Mark Asmus, who's in my short story class, is a fantastic writer, and he has an excellent story called The Escape, or An Escape, and I wanted to hear him read it because I'm a big fan of his, and he's going to be in my next session, so I'm really lucky to have kept him three times in a row now. And Mark is a very talented writer, but also a musician, And I think sometimes as fiction writers, we forget that we have the luxury to use everything at our disposal to make a great short story or novel. And Mark is actually really great at using music, but he's also great at tackling historical details. He'll use historical setting, time, and even better characters. So when I read a short story with Harry Houdini in it, I was very excited. And then it was Harry Houdini at a seance, and I was much more excited. I was like, all right. And then his main character, George Fredrickson, who is a speakeasy-owning, war-haunted veteran, just took over the show. But the whole time of Mark's story, he kept me transfixed, and I hope that he will keep you transfixed. So please welcome Mark. I'm a lot taller than anybody else who's going to read, I'm afraid, so there we go. All right, so as Paula said, this is a story that uh, I first got the idea of when I was reading a history at Denver, and I read a couple of sentences that said that uh, Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories, had had a debate at the Ogden Theater here back in 1926. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. What can I do with that? So I, uh, I ended up writing a story where, as Paula said, Houdini um, comes at the same time as Conan Doyle, but as he did virtually everywhere he went, 
He also decided to see if he could expose a medium as a charlatan. On the other hand, Conan Doyle was in Denver at the same time to defend spiritualism as a real thing. So the scene I'm going to read to you is uh, the seance. Lily Garland was the most celebrated medium in Denver. The timing of her next seance could not have been better. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes and the leading defender of spiritualism, would speak the following night at the Ogden Theater in, on Colfax. Coincidentally, the magician and escape artist Harry Houdini, a friend of Doyle, but a great skeptic, was performing at the Orpheum downtown. They would be little more than a mile apart. Lily had attracted five wealthy patrons from around the western United States, all in town to hear Doyle speak. The cost was $100 apiece. George had helped Lily arrange the event, though they had not met in person until a few days before. She had contacted him as a man who could promote her interests and protect her. She had heard that George was both discreet and effective. The house in which the seance would be held belonged to him, though he had never entered it before that night. It was a safe house for his operatives. In the basement sat a large pile of valuable contraband, a hundred cases of Canadian whiskey and 50 cases of scotch. I should add that this happened in 1926. <laughs> At eight o'clock, the strangers had gathered. Lily, in her black morning dress, cut a striking figure as they entered. Her pale skin, copper hair, dark eyes commanded their attention. George, tall, dark, a look of interested amusement at his set expression, served as her assistant. One glance, however, told you that he was no one's assistant. His eyes held a keenness that belied his smile. He was more confident than handsome, but the one trait suggested the other. He had not asked her for details about her work when she came to see him, though he was curious. Instead, he had accepted her invitation to assist her with the intention of watching her performance as a trusted conf confederate rather than as the target of her powers. He also wanted to look at her for the entire evening. She was used to having an unsettling effect upon everyone who saw her. That was clear as she greeted every arrival to the seance. Three of the clients were middle-aged men, well-dressed but otherwise undistinguished. Another was a very quiet young woman. The last, however, was a Turk, Mr. Terhan Demir of Istanbul. Demir was a small, compact, muscular man, Goateed in a charcoal gray suit of excellent cut, he moved in quick, smooth gestures, great strength suppressed, a small tiger dressed in wool, let loose to sniff the room. He spoke with an accent, Eastern European, maybe some wisps of the Near East. But George, having spent some years in New York, heard Yiddish under it all. An actor, but no linguist, this Turk. George marked him for special attention as he took his coat, Lily led the clients to the table in the candlelit parlor. Please sit, my friend, said Lily, with a look not so much inviting as commanding. George sat away from the table where he could see the faces of Lily, Demir, and the young woman, Miss Stone. Lily began. I must use your first names. You understand we must all be friends here. Mr. Fredrickson, my associate, is George, and I'm Lily to you all. Mary, I'd like you to take my hand now. Thank you. 
Close your eyes. Now cast your thoughts back to the one you lost. Mary closed her eyes. She was thin, worn, with light brown hair. She seemed dry, as if her essence had nearly gone. Her shoulders rounded in grief. She stifled a cry. It's all right, dear, said Lily. Feel the sadness. George glanced at Demir, who watched Lily as a surgeon would watch the procedure of a brilliant colleague. Mary composed herself. Her face relaxed after she wiped her tears away. Lily took Mary's hands in hers, looked into her eyes, and began. He was the friend of your youth, a strong young man who longed to see the world. Mary nodded. Yes, we grew up together. And he did travel the world in the end. Lily went on. He shipped out of San Francisco on one of his father's ships. He sailed the Orient and sent you letters telling you of all he saw. Yes, pagodas. He loved pagodas. And monkeys and the sunsets at sea near Ceylon. The Turks stared only at Lily, watching every moment, every flick of her eye. Lily said, He returned, stayed, and courted you. But you were unsure and refused him. He left you again for the sea. But when he entered the war, he volunteered, and he begged you to marry him. Mary said, he was so desperate to marry, but I wasn't convinced he really wanted me. Lily continued, you refused his proposal until he could return from the war. Yes, and I still, still hold with that decision. Then went on, Lily went on, from the rivers of the past, he disappears He died in a river, far from home, but not alone. His friends beside him dying as well. Dying as well, yes, murmured Mary. The river, asked Lily. After a pause, Mary answered, the muse. France, breathed Lily. The end of the war. The town of Consenvoy, said Mary. I went two years ago to see the place, but there wasn't much to see. Grassed over already. Lily stopped, her own eyes welling. The Turk let out a soft sound, surprised at this turn of event. I'm so sorry, Mary. May I pause a moment? Lily turned away, hiding her tears. Of course. The Turk put a hand on Lily's arm. He rose and put his arm around her shoulder. Are you all right, Miss Garland? He was not so much comforting as probing. Lily pushed the Turk's arm away. Hard. He held his arm high, did not lower it. He had never once looked away from her. Forgive me, Demir, I I fear I'm being unprofessional. He lowered his arm. No, my dear, you're being human. Lily looked at Demir, her brow contracted, as if asking him something. Demir returned the gaze, softening his, nodded in assent to her. He lowered his arm, bowed deeply, and left the room. George rose and followed, closing the sliding doors behind him. Demir faced him in the anteroom. Let me fetch your coat, Mr. Demir. Please. George held the coat as Demir slipped into it. Demir turned. They faced one another for a long moment. You're owed a refund, Mr. Demir, George said at last. He reached for his wallet. Demir smiled, waving the offer away. 
Take care of her, George. She's worth it. And he was gone. That's it. Thanks. there could be that big of a discrepancy in height. Um, Thank you for that. For those of you who want to know what happens next, the collection. The collection. In process. Um, Thank you for that. So um, Mike just handed me the glossy new, very bright Lighthouse Lit Fest brochure. What's that? It's for color. We do not skimp for you guys. So this is the Lit Fest brochure, and um, every summer in June, we invite a lot of writers here to teach workshops, to take workshops, to read, to meet with agents, to um, do everything literary, have salons, readings, everything. This year, we're also having a book fair, which I'm very excited about because we might have a tent. I mean, whoever grows out of liking tents? What's that? A bouncy, a bouncy castle. Mike's trying. He's, he's lobbying for. So these brochures are available somewhere. They're back there. Also, if you're, if you're doing the juried workshop applications, with which a bunch of you are, how many of you are doing that? A few of you. Or is it embarrassing to... Yeah, okay. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Um, those aren't due till midnight tomorrow, so you still have a ton of time in my, in my world. Of course, when I show up somewhere two minutes early, I say, gosh, we're early. And Mike always says, this is actually being on time. Um, so for the next uh, person... I'm going to be reading the intro because Doug Kurtz, unfortunately, couldn't be here. But I've also had this person in my workshops. And I have to say, you know, there are a lot of reasons to turn to art. There's, um, okay. (laughs) Some people feel comforted by the kind of beach read where things are happy and all, all the stuff that you hope could happen in life really does happen in life. Um, and that's a certain kind of writer and a certain kind of book and a certain kind of story that this next person doesn't, <laughs> doesn't concern herself with. And that's one of my favorite things about her. Because I feel like you turn to art to also seek connection about the dark things that are actually really true in your life and that you feel and you experience that, sorry, that don't really make it on the sitcoms. You'll edit out the little throat clearing. Thank you. Um, They they don't make it into the happy picture of how life is supposed to be. And I remember one of the first stories I read from this writer, I'm keeping it mysterious, um, who she is. But I thought, oh, how exciting. It was about a businessman going to I think it was Egypt, or was it Egypt? And he was, he, he was just kind of lost, and he ends up in Egypt, and he falls in love, and he decides to marry this woman who, who um, 
you know, she basically is, is uh, what's that called, disinherited from her family when she, she marries this Westerner who's just kind of an oaf. And I thought, well, that's kind of nice, lonely people meeting each other and sacrificing for each other. And then he kind of stands by while she drowns in the ocean. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> there's a darkness to Jenny Weens. <laughs> and... And I love that about her. She's smart. She's she's um, she's been there. She's she's gone to these these places. So I'm going to read the intro. Um, this is from Doug Kurtz, who teaches the novel workshop. So the last the last reader was from the short story with Polly Younger. This is from a novel workshop with Doug Kurtz. Jennifer Weens is a writer and video producer who spent many years living in the Middle East and Africa. About her writing, Jenny's work is amazingly vivid and atmospheric. She has a unique ability to pick details that create striking images and also reflect the emotion of whatever's happening in the scene. She's also able to convincingly portray characters whose backgrounds, circumstances, motives, emotions are radically different from each other's. And from what we gall dang this is what Doug says, Galdang Americans are familiar with, and thereby illuminate the culture she's writing about from within, hopefully honestly and authentically. Um, well, I don't know why he said it that way. <laughs> <clears throat> that was you. Anyway, it's a good story. The bus in Cairo is set in the Egyptian capital during the present day and starts as the most basic story of all, boy meets girl. But when boy starts hanging out with a gang, girl jilts boy, and then things take an even more unsettling turn, which in Jenny's hands I can't even imagine. Um, the chapter is where Fami, Fami? Fami, yeah. the boy, finally catches up with Basma, his girl, ex-girlfriend, on a crowded bus, and we're going to hear from Jenny Weens. Hello. I just want to make one thing clear um, because this has caused problems in the workshops. Um, Fahmi is the male and Basma is the female. And I realize I'm probably going to have to change the names at some point to more recognizably male and female, but you'll see why I confuse people if you don't keep that clear. So. Fahmi watched Basma board the 9B bus at the Adaba station. His eyes focused on her headscarf, the crystal drops on the veil's outer edges swaying against her back, one end trailing down to the curve of her ass. Her mother waddled behind her like a squat shadow, her own plain black scarf tied demurely under her throat. Once Fahmi was sure they were aboard, he scrambled on himself, Rashid following after him, pushing into the crowd of passengers. The two young men swayed on their feet near the front as the bus wound through the traffic. Did Basma see you? asked Rashid. At 16, he was three years younger than Fahmi, but already he was taller than his cousin, and he'd proved useful in the past. Maybe, but her cunt of a mother is with her, Fahmi said. They won't even look at me. A woman sitting nearby looked up with shocked eyes, and whispered to her husband. 
He was a tired-looking man in a shabby suit, the prayer callus on his forehead standing out purple against his gray skin. Itaram Nefsik, he said sternly to Fahmi, show some respect. Kushinar, Fahmi whipped back at him, go to hell and your wife too. The woman gasped and her husband sighed and started to stand. But Fahmi turned her turned his face a little, and the man saw the two long scars, one on each cheek. The husband looked away, and at the next stop, the couple got out. The man's hand dug into his wife's arm as he pushed her past Fahmi and out the door. I didn't staple. The bus was moving through the traffic near Saida Zainab now, creeping under the fragile minarets of that old mosque. Dozens of people got off, and now there were seats for everyone. But Fahmi still stood. He didn't care if Basma could see him. She couldn't play her little game of avoiding him, not here on the bus he knew she had to take every day. Down the cleared aisle, he could see Basma sitting next to the window, her dark eyes staring out, her lashes so long he could see them sweep down with each blink. Her mom perched on the outside seat of the bench. The bus lurched forward, and Basma's mom reached out a hand to steady herself, and then looked up, straight into Fahmi's eyes. He tensed, waiting for her to tell Basma, but she just looked away, with no word or change of expression. Fahmi had always liked Um Basma's quietness, the way she dressed, modestly, but in good cottons and wools. Even now, sitting unruffled by Fahmi's glare, she had a dignity that impressed him. It also made him angry. Tell him it's time, Fahmi said to Rashid. Rashid moved up the aisle and said something to the driver. The bus turned off its usual course, taking a right on a small side street, and then heading back towards Ottawa Square. Yasawa, you're going wrong, a woman with two small kids and an armful of shopping bags shouted. Vosman looked away from the window now, startled, and then she saw Fahmi. For a second, a smile almost appeared, but she shut it down and looked away. Malaysia people, this bus needs to go to the shop. Everyone has to get off here, the driver announced. There were sighs and mutterings, but broken buses were a common inconvenience. People filed off, exiting into the middle of the street and dispersing like smoke into the traffic. At the back, Basma and her mom were still gathering up their bags and purses when Fahmi appeared in front of them, having fought his way down the aisle against the exiting passengers. He bumped into the mom so that her groceries spilled, lemons and onions falling under the seat. Basma knelt to gather them up, and then Fahmi was kneeling beside her. How are you, sweetheart? He drawled as his hand grabbed hers. I don't know what you're doing here, but let go of me, she said. Fahmi was surprised at how calm she sounded, but he could feel her trembling, her hand vibrating in his. Don't worry, I'll be done quickly, light of my eyes, he said, using the endearments he'd showered on her in the past. He stood, dragging her up with him, and then he pushed her down onto the seat. Mom, she yelled as Fahmi grabbed both her arms. Her mom ran up towards the front of the bus. Driver, help, the mom screamed. But the driver just shrugged, catching Fahmi's eyes in the rearview mirror, and started the bus moving again. Fahmi knew Rash- Rashid would hold back the mom if she tried to help Basma. <clears throat> but even struggling with Basma, Fahmi could see Um, Bas- um Basma wasn't trying to help. Instead, she was shouting. And the words she spat out were aimed not at Rashid or Fahmi, but at her daughter. I told you, I told you, I told you. I knew it would be bad. 
I told you about him. I told you, I told you, she said, almost chanting over and over. Fahmi felt hurt. He'd hoped the dignified old lady had liked him, wanted him and Basma to be together. But no, she had been against him. She also thought he was bad. All he could do now was prove her right. Fahmi clambered on top of Basma, balancing unsteadily on the narrow seat, his legs on each side of her torso, pinning her arms down beneath his knees. She stopped squirming, a look of offended disbelief on her face. Fahmi, stop, she said, her voice that of a friend warning another. He did stop because he didn't know what to do next, and he was embarrassed. It was awkward, ungainly, straddling her with his crotch hovering over her stomach, his hands pushing down on her chest, his face far above hers. This was like when he'd wrestled with his brother as a kid, not like anything he and Basma had done together while kissing in the alley, not like anything he'd ever fantasized about. He felt ridiculous, a little boy of clumsy actions. Get off me, Basma said, and irritation had replaced fear in her voice. That decided him. Fuck you, he said. He grabbed the bottom hem of her long skirt and dragged it up, covering her huge eyes with its thin cotton. He leaned his weight onto her legs, and then quickly he stuffed his hand down into her underwear, filling the thin white cotton stretch and give. Then his hand was groping into places he didn't really understand. He didn't even know the names of what was there, just some vulgar terms that told nothing of actual anatomy. He didn't want to look down and see what he was doing. He felt sick, and Basma was screaming. Suddenly there was something even warmer and liquid against his fingers, and forcing himself to peer down, he saw a red smear on the white fabric. So it was done. He could stop. He brought his hand up and slid off her, relief and an exhausted blankness falling over his mind. He pulled her skirt back down to cover her legs, and now her eyes were closed, and she was crying, not screaming. He didn't care. He turned away from the weeping girl and took slow steps down the bus aisle, his hands trailing over the tops of the grubby bench seats, the fingers of his right hand leaving a slight trace of blood on the cracked vinyl. He didn't look at Rashid, but he knew Rashid would follow him. The driver opened the door quickly, and Fahmi stepped down into the dirt by the side of the road. A small crowd was near the bus. It had started to coalesce half-heartedly when Basma's screaming rose above the horn honking and general din of Ottawa Square. But no one was sure if the commotion was from inside the bus or out, or even if it was really screaming. Ottawa was always loud, with minibus touts yelling out destinations and pop music and Koran chants and news reports bellowing out from car radios. Maybe it wasn't screaming at all, just a misheard song or an imam's wail. No one stopped the two young men dressed in new jeans and nice button-down shirts as they walked slowly away. Fahmi turned and waved to the driver, and the driver pulled the metal handle that swung the door shut, closing them even as people tried to get on. He did not watch the bus go. In some ways, he'd forgotten Basma, forgotten what had just happened, forgotten everything in the onslaught of a sudden mental emptiness. Never before had he faced this vacuum of action, Always he had been full of plans, every minute a bursting menu of things that must be done, from the simplest dilemma of what to eat to the major plans of how to marry Basma, or lately, how to make sure no one else would. 
But now he had nothing to do. He had no thoughts of escape or hiding, no fear about being punished. The fickle crowds had lost interest. As for the police, none were around except the usual traffic cops. Besides, it was impossible that anyone else could be involved. This had been between him and her, and now it was over. As he had no fear, he had no desire. He wasn't hungry or horny or tired or bored. He felt nothing. He stopped walking because he had no desire to go anywhere, and he remained standing because he had no desire to sit, and he looked straight ahead because he didn't want to see anything around him. But no one stands motionless in the hot sun in Egypt, certainly not in the middle of Adaba. People swerved around him and stared, at first kindly, wondering if anything was wrong with this good-looking young boy in the new clothes, his glossy brown hair neatly cut. Then they saw the scars and hurried past. See? <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. What a, I mean, what an amazing writer, and wow. Um, we've, we strategically line up these readers, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with YA fiction, young adult, but it's known for being not, I mean, I mean it's not breezy breezy, but um, kind of more upbeat and and you know how teens make it through the world is by kind of making a joke of things um or maybe that was just me but um so anyway Sarah Oakler who teaches the YA novel was one of our workshoppers years and years ago and not even that long ago but she's now on her, is it her fourth novel, Stacy? Her fourth novel's coming out. She came back, she moved to New York, and then she came back, and she's, she's teaching at Lighthouse now. And she was really excited about this next writer, and so am I. Um, this is Stacy Chadwick, um, and here's what Sarah had to say about her. If we gave grades at Lighthouse, Stacy Chadwick would have graduated and or been kicked out long ago. <laughs> Instead, she's taken Sarah's young adult workshop all six times and counting, which speaks to both her dedication and her love of potluck alcohol. <laughs> Over the course of our many sessions together, Stacy's lovable main character, Phoebe Powers, has transformed from a jumpsuited fifth grader in the 70s to a feathered hair seventh grader. Um, in the 80s to an adorably stylish 8th grader in present day, shining stronger with each new decade. When she's not working on her novel, Stacy might be chasing her own three kids or musing on life, death, and other funny stuff on her blog, Gemini Girl in a Random World. In her fiction, Stacy has a real gift for getting inside the head of a tween girl, a scary, dangerous, and sometimes endearing place that she'll shine a light on us on for us tonight. Um, and here's what Sarah says: I dare you guys not to fall in love with Phoebe Powers. <laughs> Stacy Chadwick. Hi. Um I avoid microphones at all costs because my voice sounds like a combination of Marge Simpson and whatever the 
random cartoon character of the day is. And I wore this shirt because I'm sweating profusely right now. (laughs) But if you happen to see my bra, if you could please just raise your hand and I'll adjust it, I would really appreciate that. So, yeah. Didn't realize, you know, it's hanging like it is. Okay, so... I think I'm the first YA reader for this group, which is a little bit frightening, right? I'm the first. So hang on, because this is all about teens. Okay. Chapter one, plastic sheets are for babies. Nobody should wake up in a puddle of pee on the first day of school. And by nobody, I mean me, Phoebe Powers. But here I am, wrapped up in Hello Kitty sheets that aren't all warm and comfy cozy like the packaging promised. They're dampish, cold, and sticky. I'm a little upset about it all if you want to know the truth. The first day of school is for a cute, off-the-shoulder tank, super-new cut-off J-brand shorts, full price and not from the sale rack that mom says everything ends up on anyway, billions of pics in front of the bus with me and my BFFs, and erasers that smell like strawberries. The first day of school is not for being squished up against the wall in my twin bed by my three-year-old brother, Brent. He's potty training and snuck in during the middle of the night. Again, now I have to slither down the wrong side of the bed to get out, the one with an ancient layer of dust practically super glued to the wall and my mouth guard shoved into the spiderwebby corner because I'd rather grind my teeth all night long than wake up in the morning with a pool of drool hanging from the corner of my mouth. (laughs) I swear I'd lock my door at exactly 9 o'clock every night if I could, but Dad says that locks equal secrets and we're not the kind of family that hides things. Apparently, we are the kind of family that likes to do a lot of laundry and pay ginormous water bills. (laughs) By the way, anything that involves washing and drying is my responsibility now that I'm 13 and certainly capable of pulling my age and pitching in a little. Guess who said that? More on her high and mightiness in a minute. I'm assuming that somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m. LBST, that's Little Brother Standard Time, Brent had accident number 116 on my watch. Well, sort of. He did technically break and enter. Sorry. So instead of waking up to the happy sound of cardinal birds chirping through an open window, I get the unhappy smell of apple juicy urine seeping through my socks as I slide my way down the outer perimeter of my mattress and onto the floor. That is my favorite pair of lucky softy socks that I got for Christmas last year and wear to bed every night before something big. Like the first day of eighth grade. In my world, it doesn't get any bigger than that. My little brother can't actually go to school yet because the nuns at St. Patrick's won't let him through the door at Mom's Day Out until he can make it to the toilet before he pees in his pants. (laughs) I always thought that nuns were supposed to be the most patient people on the planet, right up there with the big guy in the sky. I was actually kind of hoping they would be the ones to train little B on account of their calm serenity, midday naps, and inclination to spontaneously do yoga. Not these ladies, though. These nuns are tough, take-no-prisoners taskmasters. I think they were actually trained in Brooklyn by gangster priests, which is why they would have been perfect for my brother. (laughs) He really needs someone to knock him around a little, in a gentle way, if you want to know my opinion. But my parents don't really listen when I try to weigh in on the matter. I told them that I'd be happy to take over in the corporal punishment department, but they said, no, thank you, Phoebe. Just concentrate on getting good grades and making friends at school. How can I focus on anything when my super lucky softy socks have been completely compromised? (laughs) Parents just don't get my generation, I guess. That's because they're too busy trying to figure out how to program their smartphones with games that increase attention spans. They play things like Brain Grinder as soon as they find the on button, but only after they take pictures of themselves to post on Facebook that are way too close up and expose wrinkles they're better off hiding. (laughs) 
I don't have a Facebook page, even though I'm 13 and legally of age. Dad says Facebook is a waste of time, and that's why I can't have an account. He says this as he's uploading a million pictures of himself from his new smartphone to Facebook. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. Anyway, Brent doesn't even care about school. He's not really into achievement right now. Plus, he gets to hang out with Dad all day and watch TV, which is totally unfair. Even though we all love little B, if you have a younger brother, you already know that getting him potty trained is priority numero uno for dad. Brent Brent is pretty much his responsibility now because on April 14th of this year, mom went from teaching English to being named principal of a brand new elementary school. You would think that becoming principal was equivalent to being honored as the most notable and merit-worthy person in the world by the Queen of England, the way everyone's made such a huge deal about it. But I don't think it's a big deal at all. In fact, I think it's horrible. Now, instead of getting the same holidays as me and being off pretty much all summer long to hang out at the pool, make me peanut butter and banana sandwiches for lunch, take me to the mall, and deal with my little brother, she works 24-7. She was so busy this summer that she never painted my nails, not even once. Just so you know, Mom is the best mani-pedi technician ever, like in the history of our whole family. I'm talking generations and generations on the power side. And whatever her last name was before she married Dad, those guys too. Like, if she wasn't a principal, she could totally open a salon, and we would hang out all the time when I wasn't in school, and I would be the most popular girl in town because everyone would come to see us for the latest press-on designs, ultra-cool crackle-sparkle colors, and ingrown toenail removal. (laughs) Or I might need to be homeschooled because we would be so super slammed with our thriving business that we'd have to open multiple locations just to handle the crush of demanding tweens and their super stylish moms. We'd run 30-minute infomercials on late-night TV, where I would naturally be the hand model, and I would become the most popular girl on the planet on account of my budding hand-modeling, TV kid actress, child prodigy, triple threat career. But no. (laughs) Mom had to choose one of the worst jobs on the extremely embarrassing occupation list. I swear it exists. Google it if you don't believe me. Principal. Everyone sees principals as the absolute authority outside the classroom. Most of them I've ever met, which is only one besides mom, are super scary, like you would only want to speak to it if you were selling Girl Scout cookies and needed two more packages to earn that magenta fleece blanket with tie-dye trim for selling a billion boxes. One billion is a lot of cookies for a blanket that's a little too babyish for me anyway, so maybe I could have used a different example. But I think you get my drift, to use a phrase that dad uses and drives me nuts. When one of them comes into class, which is rare due to all the scary things principals need to accomplish in the front office and the lunchroom when you're not looking, the whole place gets really quiet. Even Amy Penderson, who in seventh grade broke the school record for most visits to the front office ever because she won't shut up, actually shuts up. Once everybody at my new school finds out that mom is one of those people, I'll be even less popular than I am right now. At present, my popularity index clocks at an overwhelmingly pathetic zero. So thanks to mom, I'll be grouped with the foreign exchange students right out of the gate. (laughs) I guess I'll hang out with the police chief and jail warden's kids and anyone else who happens to have a parent on the extremely embarrassing occupation list, maybe if I'm lucky. Now that mom is a very important person, when she's not at school, which incidentally is 45 minutes away from the house where I grew up, she's on the computer or the phone or studying state test scores through her new bifocals because she's not as young as she used to be and super yawn-inducing things like that. She really chose the wrong job, I'm sure of it. Furthermore, instead of getting ready to meet all my lifelong besties for the high point of my existence so far and culmination of my middle school career, snagging the back row of the bus, I'm at a new school and have no idea if I'll even know anyone at my stop. I'll probably be stuck in the front row with all the crying kindies and their Justin Bieber backpacks. (laughs) 
which is just great. It was bilaterally determined last spring that we needed to move once school was out because the commute between our house and mom's new job was too far, as if that's really more important than me and my desire not to spend eighth grade eating lunch alone every day and doing Sudoku puzzles by myself so kids will think I'm way into number sequencing. Obviously, I didn't get a vote. To top it all off, as if life life weren't already excruciatingly unbearable, Mom decided it would be a great idea for me to take a test this past summer for a brand new advanced international studies curriculum being offered at my brand new school. It's some kind of AP program for kids who actually enjoy homework. At my old school, AP equals loser, and I had managed to avoid the whole thing due to funding cuts and the district's decision to prioritize JV wrestling over academics. (laughs) But not anymore. My teachers have always said I'm a bright kid with unlimited potential, but being smart isn't really something I want to advertise as a bonus feature in my vision of making at least one friend at school and maybe someday more quest to conquer eighth grade. In case I do become incredibly popular, I want to have a real opportunity to fulfill my social obligations. Beauty pageant winners, as an example, need a lot of time to do extra stuff. I don't think any of them are in this new AP program on account of how busy they are outside of school and all the parades they have to appear in and things like that. So maybe I better sit it out just in case I win an important contest. When I explained my POV to mom, she said not to worry, that we were just going to shake this thing to see if it would stick. She's always quoting phrases like that nowadays in her uber-productive, no-nonsense, super-comfy-shoe power mode that she assumed when she got her new job. I channeled my uber-snotty, no-nonsense, super-evil eye-roll and said, fine. So that's it. My fate appears to be sealed with no chance of playing a get-out-of-jail-free card because mom says all the women on her side of the family are super strong, and that includes me. I reminded her that Brent came straight from her bionic genes, too, and he can't even figure out when to pee. (laughs) She gave me her best mom stare and said, Oh, Phoebe, sometimes you can be so immature. And then she told me to go wash my little brother's sheets. So here I am on the first day of school, lying on the floor while little beast snores snot bubbles out his nose. I have no inclination to get up and go, except I got the brand new pair of J-brand cutoff shorts just in time. Last pair in my size and 30% off just like mom said, which kind of makes me mad because I hate it when she's right. The truth is she should have a ringtone that screams, I told you so, because she says it so much. That way she can save her voice for yelling at her students. Principals do a lot of yelling, at least I think so. Hopefully she won't practice on me. But I would have paid double for the double the price tag. I love my new shorts so much. It's of infinite superior importance to wear the right outfit on the first day of school, especially when you need every tool in your dad's creepy garage to help you win friends and influence people. So I got to go because mom is literally practicing her yelling skills on me right now. And I need to get those shorts on before she decides to take, take them away. And a principal powers power play and stuff like that. That's it. <laughs> I just figured something out about life. <laughs> like, okay, so you know those nihilistic kind of existential moments? You have to follow up with this because the concerns of the tween remind us that it can be kind of fun sometimes too. And even, you know, your shorts and your outfit can matter on a grand scale. And I, I love that. Thank you so much for doing that. I'm so glad YA is represented tonight. Um, thank you. Great job. And I happen to know her husband 
is here excited to miss the CU game. I mean, he said that. I, I, he may have a tattoo of say CU on his shin or something, or his calf. But he's glad. He's glad to be here, and I think that kind of support matters to a writer. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, last but not least, uh, I don't know anybody who has met this instructor who hasn't been bewitched by her. She's a lovely person, a great writer. Her new memoir, Raw Edges, is available, and I recommend that you get it. Um, she is just a lovely person, and we're so thrilled she's teaching for us, Ms. Phyllis Barber. When Irish eyes are smiling. <laughs> Couldn't resist. <laughs> All right. Excuse this. I write things out, so I'll try to be jolly. What a surprise to conduct the first writing exercise in my recent class on memoir and landscape and to listen to Melinda Miller, someone I had just met, reading her results. I heard rich prose. I heard lean prose. My ears listened up. I heard cadence, resonance, and poetry in the language. This was music to the woman who loves music. And when I learned that she was working on a memoir about Nevada's Highway 50, one of the loneliest stretches of highway in the United States, and that dusty, sage-dotted Great Basin territory where my own literary soul was shaped by whistling wind and blowing sand, I felt a chill streak down my spine. I felt like a thirsty desert woman whose thirst was being appeased, not with water, but with such well-chosen words. Melinda Miller has been an editor at Many Mountains Moving and a reporter for the Longmont Times Call and now writes poetry and creative nonfiction. She's currently enrolled in an MFA program at Western State College of Colorado and in poetry, and she was born and raised in the West and has a long-standing interest in the region and in its people. She's the Assistant Director of Media Relations at the University of Colorado Boulder, an instructor for Lighthouse Young Writers, a visiting artist for Poetry Out Loud, and a board member of the Robinson Jeffers Association. What a pleasure to have met Melinda. What a pleasure to introduce her and her talent to you. And I say thank you for this shaper of words who can find such beauty in the landscape often called desolate, bizarre, and godforsaken. I, for one, am tired of such trash talk. <laughs> Good evening. My husband is also here. He's not wearing a tattoo. He's being a little more obvious. <laughs> he, he also said... So it starts at 6.45. Do you think I'll be able to catch the second half of the game? So. You're only down by three, babe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I have two degrees from CU, and I work there, and I've been there 20 years, so I'm rooting for them as well. But can you please not watch the score right now? Okay. Okay, is this volume good? Okay. Um, thank you, Lighthouse. I'm amazed that when I... I'm writing a narrative um, in my poetry class for, for my MFA, 
and it's a, it's about my life in Nevada and growing up in the landscape. And I was struggling with it because I've never taken memoir class. And I was at a, a party, and someone from Lighthouse said, you have to take this class from Phyllis Barbara, Barber. It's on landscape and memoir, and she's from Nevada. <laughs> so taking another class is probably the last thing I had time for this spring, as my family would tell you, but I had to take it. I'm going to move this up just a little bit. So I'm going to read, um, there's four, four scenes, and they all um, go around Highway 50. One person's version of reality will seldom match what other people see. Just like Nevada landscape, so desolate to some, like gold to others. Where if men sprung forth from earth, Surely dad would have come from crusty salt flats or earthquake faults. He is of that land, like a lightning-struck spruce tree or craggy cliffs above the petroglyph caves, a a weathered cedar fence post or an old coyote. And as I count his years under brash desert sky, I realize what I've known but never thought about. His years as part of that rough land have always matched my age. I met my dad in a Utah desert snowstorm when I was three weeks old. He moved from Colorado to Nevada, starting his job at the Kennecott Copper Mine in Ely, while Mom and my sister waited for me to appear. When our flight west was grounded in a Utah blizzard, Dad drove eight hours in a whiteout to pick us up. The desert had already taken him in. That land that has now led him through heat and dark and snow to retrieve a drink or a dollar or a daughter. Though I never tired of molasses moving time and netted stars, I left it behind until I found that where I am, among suburban lawns, asphalt, and big box stars, I need Nevada's spread-out sky, with hundred-mile deep breaths from cluttering gas stations, grocery stores, municipal plumbing, and traffic lights, pauses without breaks in stretched skyline, where caramel sand and pungent sage entangle with mustangs, range cattle, abandoned cars, Those stars were there before salt-watered sea receded from that land. And now, those stars, howling coyotes, pinion nuts, and sage pull at my task-mired mind. Selena, Utah, Highway 50, September 14, 2001. I studied the two-story motor inn coming up on our right, Sure that I've been here with Dad and my sister on one of our our 900-mile drives from Denver to his ranch in Nevada. It's after 11 p.m., and we've been on the road since early afternoon. Let's try here, I tell my husband, and he pulls our odyssey into the parking lot. He goes to check in, and I stare out into the dark, listening to the quiet breathing of our sons. Finally asleep, after a day of generating enough energy to bounce off all surfaces of the van. 
It's been 14 years since I've been to my dad's ranch, two weeks since the boys started kindergarten, and three days since the planes, tra- since the planes crashed into the Twin Towers. Duality constricts and twisted threads throughout my body, a resistance to leaving a community united and a reaction to terror, but needing to be away from constant noise of TV and conversations that circulate fear, reconsidering the wisdom of embarking with five-year-old boys across the stretch Life magazine dubbed the loneliest highway in America, and in an odyssey, a vehicle named after a winding, pain-inflicted journey. (laughs) But on the other hand, wanting to be away, wanting the distorted desert stretches of salted sand and somersaulting sky to swallow us into another realm. I watch the motel office door, wondering what's taking so long, and count the room doors along the balcony while I wait. When I was a teenager, I'd lie in bed at night at my dad's ranch and count the doors of the sprawling two-story rock house built in the late 1800s, a house with 19 doors connecting a circuitous network of rooms. One summer, Dad went on a trip to stake mining claims, and I stayed behind. In bed, I visualized the characters who might travel the desolate highway at night, The ranch is in a valley one mile off Highway 50, with the nearest towns 60 miles east and 70 miles west. It was once a stop on the Overland stage line and on the route of the Pony Express, and is almost as remote now as it was then. At 16, my imagination took off in all the stereotypical scenarios of what could happen. The The biker with the dark side who runs out of gas, escaped convicts who steal a truck from Outback, and the nice couple whose car breaks down and need a place to stay, but the husband has other things on his mind. Each night, I mentally recounted doors, picturing the network of rooms and mapping escape routes. The side door of the van pops open, and I jump before I realize it's my husband. What took so long? All the rooms in town are booked, he says. Of course they are. We'd been planning this trip for months, but hadn't factored in that some flights are still grounded and stranded travelers have taken to the roads. The clerk started making calls and found us a room an hour away. I start to interrupt, but he keeps talking. Then a man who came into the office for ice offered us his. It sounds like you have young kids. Get them to bed. I'll stay in my uncle's room. Such a simple act, but volumes for the four of us. And within minutes, we're in a tiny room with only one bed. Grateful to be bedding down the kids on the floor, relieved to turn in instead of winding our way in the dark to Delta. One mile off Highway 50, Clan Alpine Valley, Nevada, October 2008. I stop the truck at the barbed wire gate. As Dad opens his creaking door, his legs so long that they almost unfold. I half expect to hear his joints repeat that sound. That was so long ago. Why would you want to know about all that, he asks, dropping a cigarette in the dirt. I've just asked Dad what led to moving in with Jane, wife two of three, 
and my first encounter with not knowing if I should love or hate. It's not as much the what of what he did, but more the how of how his trips home from Ely, from, to Ely from Mina stopped without explanation, of how mom couldn't find him when she needed him, of his assimilation to that other town and to another family while he told mom to sell the Jeep for sustenance, of how, before mom knew, he took Jane's sons hunting and they stayed overnight with us. Mina, Nevada. 90 miles south of Highway 50, June 2011. Another trip, another year, and we've just spent two hours driving on faded roads, slim bands that look like they were never new, or like slit snakes with glistening heads stretched out across the sand. What's left of Mina is a holdout bar, a one-pump 70s gas station, a faux market, a diner in a landlocked yacht, and shacks mixed in among trailers and railroad houses. Dad and I are in the Mina Club with Dinah, Steve, and Mama. Well, not really with. We just stopped by, but they'll be here the rest of the day and tomorrow and the next. I don't remember them, but they know me and know more of Dad's story than I was there to know or understand. Although it's 95 outside, Steve wears a long sleeve flannel shirt and hat. He drinks his Ole as if it is his job, and looks at me as if I'm still a kid. Steve's the best tramp miner in these parts, Dad says. Steve doesn't smile, but a curt nod acknowledges the compliment. Tramp miner? He isn't loyal to one mine, Dad says. He goes from mine to mine to work. I wonder, how are there enough mines near here left to be that picky? I suppose that's why he's sitting at the bar at noon. I reconsider the drink I turned down, then think better of it. If Dad is sticking to just Coke, then so should I. I start to ask Mama's real name, but realize it doesn't matter. Tiny towns like this have matriarchal queens. When I was young, Jane was the matriarchal queen of Mina. We leave the bar and drive to the corner of 11th and B, where Dad lived with Jane and her kids, and I spent parts of three summers. I don't know why I thought we'd find the trailer and possibly them, Trailers and people rarely stick around. The lot is vacant, but not empty. The gate and a satellite dish are in place. The two elms that framed the front door are shriveled, but still stand. And the ore cart Dad hauled out of a mine is in the center of what used to be the yard. Dad and I walk the perimeter where we find the petrified wood we collected, still arranged in a ring and the blue glass telephone pole insulators stacked in the shape of a pyramid. We used to pack lunches and go on day trips to ghost towns. Nevada is filled with remnants of life. Sites where as soon as the gold disappeared, the town packed up, leaving behind stragglers living in shacks. 
I think of the sea monkeys we had in the 70s. Just add that formulated water and a sea monkey kingdom would spring to life. In this great basin, once a sea, what formula would it take to reconstitute these towns? Wow. I hope I'm not outing you by saying I think you might be a poet. <laughs> I, think, I think that my introduction You're great. Um, thank you for that. That was beautiful. And I hope this gives you a sense of the breadth of what is being written in these workshops. And um, if you're somebody who's been thinking about writing or you've been writing in secret, this might help you kind of come out of the closet and... Find a, find a group that, that might help you kind of make time for it every week and, and embrace that part of it, uh, part of your life. And um, we have actual workshops starting next week. Phyllis, in fact, is teaching a Saturday morning <laughs> workshop um, on memoir that focuses on, on how do you incorporate all these other people in your life into your work? Uh, what are some of the issues? What do you need to think about? Um, so check our website, www.lighthousewriters.org. Um, that was one thing I wanted to say, and thank you to all the readers tonight. It was another... guys are amazing. Um, that's another thing I wanted to say. And the third thing is Mike was really excited to read one more poem. And then, oh, oh, one other thing is thank you to the other instructors and um, all of you members who are here tonight. Thank you, because this is a member-funded event. All of the delicious appetizers that Dan and others have, have procured for this Made evening. By Made by hand in a sweatshop. <laughs> I hope you feel okay about it. Um, no, I mean, it's part of industrializing. Um, so uh, thank you all for what you do for Lighthouse. Just being here is doing something. And the instructors, do you feel like standing or is that embarrassing? Why don't you stand? I see a couple back there and Amanda and Alexander. And yes, thank you. Thank you. Catherine's doubling as a photographer, but she also teaches our intro to the writer's workshop, which is kind of like a warm embrace for anyone coming into this place. It can be scary, I think, to kind of, uh, what's that word, make tangible that dream of writing. I think it can be nerve-wracking, and, and Catherine is one of the people who welcomes you in. Um, so... We will have some more food and wine upstairs, but I also want Mike to get a chance to read his second poem. One more poem, and then it's going to take 30 seconds. 30, 30 seconds. Who doesn't have that to spare? And then we'll reconvene upstairs. Thank you all. I'd like to read a poem called I Love You, Sweetheart. 
No. Really, I, I mean, you guys ready? Why don't we just go drink? Yeah. All right. Okay, fine. Um, this is by Seamus Haney. He's Irish. Right. Hey, what? He's Irish. Oh, yeah, we have a reading as a writer class starting. Um, when is it? A couple weeks? See, you should still be up here. This week. What night? Oh, okay. Tuesday. Is it Tuesday? Who said Tuesday? It's going to be an excellent class. I'm teaching it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not teaching it. Um, and I guess sort of this, this poem, I think, does a really good job of addressing the writer's impulse. So I'll read it really quickly. No, I knew. Blimey, I can't do that. No, that, that's English. See? And then it'll switch to like... Read it in... Uh, I'm going to read it in Buffalonian, because I'm from Buffalo. Diggin'. Diggin' by Seamus Heaney. Just kidding. Diggin'. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean, rasping sound when the spade sinks into the gravelly ground. My father, digging. I look down till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up twenty years away, stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the lug, the shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. By God, the old man could handle a spade, just like his old man. My grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's Bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle, corked sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it, then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf, digging. The cold smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head. But I've no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.